stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Well, certainly the issue of Afghanistan is looming large over Canada's federal election and concern over how the Liberal government has handled the evacuation, uh, that they were slow to act and very quick to end the mis- mission, a mission that ended up being far too bureaucratic in nature. But obviously the failure is not Canada's alone. And I think there's a lot of failure to go around in, in terms of um, you know allies, including the United States and others. But how did it get this bad? Now, obviously, the suicide bomb attack yesterday has changed the equation somewhat and a reminder of the various security threats that exist in Afghanistan. It's not just the Taliban, uh, this Islamic State offshoot, um, which is believed to be responsible for the suicide bomb attack. In fact, they're enemies of the Taliban. And there's, uh, I think, a need to, to strike back there. But I think the big question is, you know, how did the Taliban reassert control over Afghanistan so quickly? So what seemed like easily. Right. I think the speed at which they were able to, to take Kabul caught everybody off guard. Now, I mentioned this yesterday. There's a really fascinating piece up at nationalreview.com uh, looking at where things went sideways. And something that occurred in June that wasn't really noticed at the time, but was kind of in, in a lot of ways the beginning of the end. And that question about where was the Afghan National Army, I think it's important to understand that. So joining us to talk more about uh, that side of it. As the author of that piece is mentioned uh, up at nationalreview.com. Uh, Brad Taylor is uh, on the line with us this afternoon, a 21-year veteran of the U.S. Uh, Army Infantry and Special Forces, a retired uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, he's also a prolific author, 15 New York Times bestsellers, including uh, the latest coming in January. It's called End of Days, a Pike Logan novel, much more bradtaylorbooks.com. Brad Taylor, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I think a lot of people are wondering that, and, and it, I think it affects the debate, right? If, if Afghans are going to fight for their country, why should we? So why is it important to understand, first of all, what went wrong with the Afghan army? Well, a lot of what went wrong with the Afghan army is it's kind of a repeat of history. It's, I don't think it's fair. In fact, I think it's disingenuous for all these people to say that, you know, Afghans didn't fight for their country. They didn't do this. They didn't do that, which is, you know, at the end of the day, they did capitulate. Um, but... We train them to fight along the lines of us, which is we have enormous logistics resources. We have the golden hour for medevac helicopters. We have all kinds of things that we use while we were fighting there. And we train them in our own image. You fight like us. And then we pulled the image away. You can't fight like us if you don't have the golden hour helicopter coming in because we're no longer there. If you no longer have the ISR platforms out to spot the enemy because that's how you were trained to fight. So you go out and fight, and we tell you where to hit and things like that, because we, you know, we had combat operations. We pulled back and said, we'll give you all these assets. You continue to fight. Well, when you pull all those assets away, they're not going to fight. Uh, they, they lose the will to fight. They think that, you know, we're being abandoned, and it's a self-perpetuating prophecy uh, for insurgencies, which was the point of the article, was in insurgency, there, there's the, the perception of who's going to win the so-called rational peasant, there's a book written about Vietnam called The Rational Peasant. The so-called rational peasant, he's going to pick a side. He's going to be on the winning side. And that winning side is a perception all the way through until somebody's won. And they picked a side. And they said, you know, America's leaving, Taliban's staying, I'm picking a Taliban. We talk about the Afghan National Army in, in kind of broad terms, but there's an important distinction to be made because there was uh, what's known as the Afghanistan commandos that did uh, the bulk of the fighting against the Taliban were very successful 
in fighting the Taliban. What happened with the Afghanistan commandos? Yeah, that's actually that. The, what I the whole point of the article was. I think that was in my mind anyway. After studying, you know, insurgency for my entire military career and actually shooting insurgents, the uh, mm-hmm. the commandos would go out and they take over an area where the Taliban. If the Taliban encroached, they'd send the commandos in. They clear the Taliban out. Then the ANA would come in. The regular conscripts of the Afghan National Army would stabilize the area, and then they would kind of hodgepodge around. So the commandos were the only organization that fought throughout the country. Uh, and they were really successful at it. And they were successful because they had us backing them up. Um, and they went into a village, took it over, called in the ANA, and the ANA said, we're not coming in. And the Afghans said, you know, the commandos, you have to come in. And they didn't. And the Taliban regrouped, came back in, and captured 22 of them uh, because air power wasn't coming in. The air power couldn't get in because we pulled all the maintenance pro- uh, platforms from the actual Afghan Air Force that had planes to fly and pilots to fly them, but they couldn't fly because we'd taken all the maintenance away from them. Uh, and then we were not doing any air power anymore. We were saying, we're leaving, You're not, we're not going to shoot anybody anymore. And um, all 22 of them were pulled out and killed, uh, executed on the street, yeah. on video, which was posted to social media. Well, that sent a signal throughout the entire Afghan National Army that, you know, I'm just Private Joe Snuffy in Afghan National Army, and... Is anybody going to back me up if I get in a fight with the Taliban? They didn't even back up the commandos. And that was a domino in the perception fall um, that I believe caused the whole fall. As quickly as it did, put it that way. I mean, the, the, the intelligence assessments were, you know, it's going to take six months, eight months, a year. Well, it happened that quickly because perception is reality. And guys were like, you know, these guys got killed. You're not even going to back them up. You're, what, you're certainly not going to back me up. You mentioned you, you've studied insurgencies over the years. I mean, uh, the Taliban is, is unique in a lot of ways, but there's there's a lot of parallels there. But I mean, here we have a group that, as you just mentioned, they certainly have that, that ferocity, that determination. They have a long-term view. You know, all of these things that, that can prove successful for these sorts of insurgency movements. What, what is it about the Taliban uh, that, that, is, that has kept them going after all of these years and, and has led to that, that success for them, I guess? Uh, the Taliban is kind of a unique organization. So they came about, I mean, if you really want to look at history, and, and nobody wants to look back this far, but we went in there and helped them with Stinger missiles back when they were fighting the Soviet Union. And um, the Soviet Union, the government, the communist government inside Afghanistan collapsed. The Soviet Union fled the country, and we didn't stay. Everybody that we'd helped said, you got to stay, stabilize this place. And we were like, eh, nope, don't even know where that place is. We defeated the Soviet Union. Afghanistan, you're on your own. Well, what happens? a bunch of warlords took over and started raping and pillaging the entire country, which is held by warlords. And a guy named Mullah Omar, um, which you might know as the Taliban, took over one town and said, I'm not going to allow this anymore. And he instituted very strict Sharia law. But Maslow's hierarchy needs for the average human being exist. At the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchy needs is survival. At the top is self-esteem. At the bottom is survival. And when he took over this place and instituted law and order, they said, okay, I'll, I'll live with the burqa if you're going to keep these warlords from, you know, raping and pillaging. Well, that was successful enough to take over the entire country. Then, of course, he harbored al-Qaeda. We had 9-11 attacks, and we got rid of them. And we got rid of them so quickly, precisely from what I'm talking about. The average Afghan rational peasant went, there's no way the Taliban can stand against these guys, and they sided with the United States. And then we took our eye off the ball. We went to Afghanistan or to Iraq. They were able to reconstitute. And part of the problem, I mean, which you can't get away from, is that Afghanistan in and of itself as a culture is very fiercely nationalistic. 
So there's a lot of people that were fighting for the Taliban weren't fighting because they wanted women burqas. They were fighting because they saw an occupying invader and that the government inside uh, Afghanistan that we had was, uh, you know, corrupt and it wasn't uh, legitimate. And so they had an essence of, I'm just going to fight because this is what I do. Um, and so that was just, it's kind of a thing It's hard to, to dice. We've got, a, obviously, a very volatile situation still. I mean, the Taliban appears to be back in control. Uh, there's still the warlords to deal with. As we saw yesterday, there, there are other groups to deal with, groups even more extremist uh, than the Taliban, like this uh, Islamic State offshoot. Um, whatever groups the Taliban might open the door to uh, in the future, I mean, all kinds of reasons to be concerned. What are your thoughts on some of the, you know, the, the big-picture security threats here going forward? Well, ISIK, I hear a lot of people on TV now talking about, you know, we never heard of ISIK, and I'm like... You guys, you never heard it in America because you're in Wisconsin, your own little world. And you have, I guarantee you the people in Afghanistan have heard them. As late as 2019, they were one of the most deadly terrorist groups in the world as far as attacks went. They've blown up schools. They've killed women and children, all kinds of stuff. Uh, if people, you know, when they say, I've never heard of ISIK, well, do you remember when we dropped the so-called mother of all bombs? I mean, you can Google that. That was against ISIK three years ago. Uh, and they're an offshoot. They've got a a problem with al-Qaeda that's kind of be unique. I'm trying to see, I'm still factoring my own head what's going on here. So the Islamic State came out of al-Qaeda in Iraq. So uh, out of al-Qaeda of Iraq, they created the Islamic State. The Islamic State then went into Syria. Well, the head of al-Qaeda in Syria was a group called Jabhat al-Nusra. They went in and said, we're the head of al-Qaeda. The Islamic State did. Now they turned their name into ISIS. was the Islamic State. It became Islamic State of, of uh, Islam or al-Sham, they were taking over everything, and they told Jabhat al-Nusra, we're the official representatives of al-Qaeda. Well, Jabhat al-Nusra went to the hierarchy, to uh, Zawahiri, and said, hey, who's in charge here? Is it them or us? And Zawahiri said, it's Jabhat al-Nusra. Islamic State, fall under the banner of Jabhat al-Nusra, or leave the country. Well, Islamic State said, I've got a better idea. How about this? I attack you, too. And that formed the seed of how al-Qaeda and the Islamic State hate each other. Well, then the Islamic State formed from the Pakistan Taliban inside Afghanistan. And because they needed the al-Baghdadi, you know, certification of authenticity and all that, they naturally became an enemy of al-Qaeda. Well, the Taliban is a friend of al-Qaeda. So then, naturally, the Taliban became an enemy of the Islamic State. And that's kind of where we stand now. I mean, that's kind of a snapshot, I guess. Well, and we, we get these situations where, I don't know, the enemy of the, my enemy is, is my friend. Can you see any sort of uh, basis for cooperating with the Taliban to, to take care of this threat? Yeah, I can. I mean, it's hard to say nobody wants to do that, me least of all. I mean, I spent a lot of time yeah. shooting the Taliban. But we've already done that. I mentioned the mother all bombs drop. There was Taliban people fighting against the Islamic State at that time. And we were coordinating with them, saying, hey, here's where the bad guys are. Go get them. Because the one thing we don't want... And uh, the Taliban has never had transnational aspirations. So they want is, you know, their emir, the Islamic emir inside Afghanistan. That's all they wanted. They never said, we're going to drop the Twin Towers. They never said, we're going to attack anybody. Make no mistake, Islamic State of the Khorasan, the one that just blew up the uh, Kabul airport, they most definitely have a transnational attack vector. Yeah. But so does al-Qaeda, which poses a dilemma to us. I mean, we know for a fact the Taliban still coordinates al-Qaeda, and we also know for a fact that al-Qaeda definitely wants to attack us in the homeland. So that's a dance that, you know, who knows how that's going to go. 
We'll leave it there. Some great insight. Uh, much more is mentioned. Uh, BradTaylorBooks.com. And you got a piece up this week is mentioned as well. NationalReview.com. Brad, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really do appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you very much. All the best. All right, there you go. Brad Taylor, uh, best-selling author, uh, former U.S. Special Forces member, 21 years, in fact, uh, with U.S. Army Infantry and Special Forces, retired lieutenant colonel, author of 15 New York Times bestsellers. His latest novel, End of Days, will be out in January. So some really uh, insightful uh, views on what's happening in Afghanistan, some of the background here that I think is really important to understand in this, this weird context we have right now. We're obviously we're worried about the Taliban and their friends. But clearly, there's, there's some shared enemies here, or at least one in particular. Yeah, welcome to this hour along the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Friday afternoon, the final Friday of August. The second Friday on the campaign trail as we now wind down the second week of campaigning leading up to the September 20th federal election. And it's been an unusual couple of weeks Certainly the Afghanistan issue has loomed large over this campaign. I don't think the intent was to have a, a, an election campaign around an issue like this. It was a, a bit of a timing problem for the government in that sense. But ultimately, I mean, the liberals wanted this election. Kind of the narrative this year has been how eager the liberals were to have an election. They were riding high in the polls and it was just a matter of when they would convert that minority government into a majority. But ultimately, campaigns still matter. As much as it feels like it's kind of been a campaign about nothing, or at least in the sense that we haven't had any defining issues in this campaign, maybe speaks to just how unprepared the liberals seem to be for this campaign they so badly wanted. Anyway, joining us to talk about what we've seen and heard on the campaign trail thus far and how this compares and contrasts to uh, previous elections. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, someone who's covered uh, a few elections himself. Paul Wells, a senior writer at McLean's Magazine, wrote a great book about uh, Stephen Harper's time in office called The Longer I'm Prime Minister. Paul Wells, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for making some time for us here today. So we're, we're a couple of weeks into this. Is, is there any kind of a narrative that, that's forming in your head in terms of how we're going to look back and, you know, define this campaign? Uh, yeah, I believe that this campaign has put a tremendous scare into the liberals and a campaign that they had imagined uh, for more than a year as um, uh, a chance to present a triumphant vision of the future to Canadians, which Canadians would heartily endorse, uh, has turned into anything but that. Um, yeah. There's there's a major second step that still has barely begun, which is Canadians starting to ask themselves um, what uh, what they think of a possible Aaron O'Toole government and whether that option in itself is attractive to them. Um, but the 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 since the first move was the government's, the, the main decision was the government's, um, I think liberals are being surprised by what they're hearing from Canadians about their government. It feels like a real disconnect, or, or it's a paradox almost at some level, that the liberals wanted this election, they've been planning for this election, and once it happened, once it started, they just seem surprised. They seem like they weren't ready. How, how do we square that circle? So... Um, uh, I'm often critical of, of this government, and I, I, I just want to make it clear that I'm not offering a blanket condemnation of liberals. I, you know, they, uh, Justin Trudeau's gotten elected twice in a row. He's um, 
came from behind to win the first time. The poll suggests that he's still a little likelier than not to win again. But one mm-hmm. thing, I have noticed some things about this guy over the years. One of the things is, in any new situation, he's not as sure-footed as you might expect him to be. He always takes time to adjust, and, it's, and it can be painful. Um, when it became clear that the SNC-Lavalin controversy was a real thing, it took it took many days for them to have even the beginnings of a discourse that made any sense in that context. Uh, when, um, when it became clear that this pandemic was a serious thing, it took them weeks to begin to, to, to seem to have any handle on how to handle airport traffic, how to handle the border, uh, how to, um, uh, whether to, uh, lead in physical distancing and stuff like that. Uh, this guy's got his strengths and his qualities, but he doesn't, he doesn't corner well. And yeah, you're right. You'd think that a campaign that they chose at a moment they decided, I was hearing August 15th as the 15th or 16th as, as the date that this campaign would begin more than a month ahead of time. Uh, and yet when the moment came, they, uh, they didn't have their own discourse ready. They weren't prepared for possible discourse from the other parties. I'm told they're still not done their platform. Uh, yeah, so it is, it's a surprise, but it's a surprise I have seen before. Well, it, it it seems odd. I mean, the liberals have this reputation. Obviously, they had some some tough elections uh, during Stephen Harper's time in office. But it's it's the whole reputation of you know the big red machine that they're really good at this. They know how to win elections. And look, I mean, you know, the vaccine rollout's gone really well. You know, the economy's recovering. It just seems you know they they had the kind of momentum or wind in their sails that an incumbent government would want to have. I'm just not sure where where things have gone sideways here for them. Yeah, vaccines are another good example. I mean, it's ending well, and, and to some extent, that's what matters the most. Uh, right. Canada's got a higher rate of vaccination than any other prominent country, any other country in NATO or in G7, um, and and, uh, and Canadians are safer because of that. Canada's got the second lowest death rate in the G7 uh, after Japan, uh, um, partly because this government was able to afford to pay people to stay home. You know, I mean, um, but the vaccine thing was hell on wheels, for, for for weeks and even months before it started to go better. Uh, and uh, and that gets to what I say about the Trudeau group. Um, they had to know from April or May of 2020 that, uh, you know, one of the two or three big challenges uh, would be getting vaccines out when they became available. And yet they seemed really surprised by it when that came. Um uh, as for the big red machine, I mean, um, uh, the Liberal Party of Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin uh, was already essentially gone forever by the time Trudeau became the leader. Uh, they had the worst decade in the history of the party before Trudeau came along. And Trudeau put some work into purging veterans of the Martin Chrétien uh, era from from the senior ranks of the party. This is a younger party that has no experience of power uh, under a prime minister who wasn't Justin Trudeau. Uh, they have uh, no, there's no real capacity inside uh, the party to imagine a different way to govern than the way Justin Trudeau governs. This is a crew that does not read history, to say the least. Uh, and, 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 you know, so uh, all of their successes are theirs alone. They're not really part of party tradition. And all of their failures are innovations. 
We look at what they're facing. I think Aaron O'Toole, you know, is is presents a different kind of challenge. And the Conservatives have been pretty competent uh, so far in terms of uh, their strategy and their announcements and their focus. And, yep. and for that matter, compounding the problems for the Liberals, not only have the NDP uh, done well out of the gate, Jagmeet Singh is well liked. Jagmeet Singh has also taken kind of a softer stance when it comes to that whole question of a possible uh, Tory minority. What, what do you make of uh, the, the Conservatives and the NDP so far? Um, Aaron O'Toole... Uh, seems to have spent the last month preparing uh, for uh, this campaign the way Justin Trudeau spent preparing for that big boxing match in, uh, <laughs> you know, I think 2012 um, against um, Pat Brazo, the Pat senator. Brazo, yeah. uh, everyone spent all their time talking about how Trudeau was going to be reduced to paste on the on, on, on the floor of the boxing ring. And Trudeau was sparring with professional boxers, working out, and working on his uh, endurance, and um, and 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 that crazy, crazily enough, that boxing match had had a lot to do with putting Trudeau on the map. Um, and and he did all of that while people were busy writing him off. Similarly, turns out that Aaron O'Toole's been working really hard on the platform. Turns out he's been working really hard on the theater of politics, on the design of the set that he uses in a, a hotel suite in Ottawa that, that is the headquarters for his virtual campaign. Uh, and, and O'Toole has been uh, getting ready to make a good initial impression in the campaign. Uh, uh, I mean, to me, the parallel to the Trudeau boxing matches, I mean, it's a little forced, but it's it's kind of striking. Uh, Jagmeet Singh... Um, has been running, I mean, almost literally the same campaign as in 2019. They, he released his platform before anyone else did, and it's close to a it's close to a line by line reprint of the NDP's 2019 platform, uh, which is fair. You didn't you didn't vote for it then, well, maybe you'll vote for it now. Uh, and certainly, he's familiar with with uh, the elements of the platform because he's running on it for the second time. I was a little surprised uh, to hear him say that he would consider. Uh, supporting uh, an eventual conservative minority government. He said the opposite when Andrew Scheer was the leader in 2019. And I'm still not entirely sure that if it actually came to it, if NDP support was what O'Toole needed to form uh, a working government in the House of Commons, I'm not sure NDP members would, would actually support uh, Singh propping up O'Toole. Um, I mean, to some extent, it's the leader's prerogative. It, it, he's got the votes in the House of Commons, and he wants to put those votes behind uh, an O'Toole government. He's allowed. But it's also true that uh, NDP members get a say over who the leader of their party is. And I think, I think mm-hmm. if it actually came to that, there might be some surprise, some, some turmoil inside the party. Well, that's one of the topics you were writing about this week. Much more from you at uh, mcleans.ca. Paul, thanks for checking in with his, uh, here today. Appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Paul Wells, uh, veteran political journalist, senior writer at McLean's Magazine. Uh, guy's covered a few elections in this country. As mentioned, uh, wrote about uh, Stephen Harper's time in office, his book, The Longer I'm Prime Minister. So Stephen Harper got to, well, nine years in a bit, almost 10 years. Obviously, if Justin Trudeau were to win a majority government in this election, you know, he'd be right up there. So in that sense, in terms of his legacy, it's a pretty important election. I mean, all elections matter, obviously. 
But uh, this one isn't going, I think, as liberals expected it to. There's still time to turn it around here, clearly. But at the same time, they opted for a shorter campaign. Maybe they're regretting that now. September 20th uh, is getting closer and closer. Well, maybe this shouldn't come as a big surprise. Ryerson University recently uh, announced that they were changing the name of their law school uh, to Lincoln Alexander Law School. But of course, the name Ryerson still remained on the university itself. There have been calls uh, to take that name down, to change the name of the university altogether, maybe to name it after Lincoln Alexander, maybe to call it Reconciliation University, as some have suggested. The decision was made this week. Ryerson University is going to change its name. In terms of what that name will be, I guess we'll, we'll find out in due course. It sounds as though uh, the new name might be selected by September of next year. Now, this is all part of the conversation that we're having as a country and coming to terms with the legacy of residential schools. Obviously, there were political leaders who, who designed and implemented the residential school system. Uh, we need to understand and acknowledge that. But it's interesting to see how Edgerton Ryerson has been dragged into this. Now, Edgerton Ryerson, most of his work uh, was well before Canada was founded as a country, certainly well before any residential schools existed. He was not an elected official. He was not a politician. He was not involved in designing or implementing residential schools. What Edgerton Ryerson was known for, reason why there's a university named after him and other public schools, is because he was a big supporter of education. Widely available, free public education. Now, as someone who lived in the mid-1800s, we wouldn't expect that individual to necessarily have progressive views on First Nations, at least by our standards. But I think arguably, even by the standards of the day, his views were seen as progressive. So why have we lumped him in, in this category of, of history's villains? And is it fair uh, to him or his legacy to change the name of the university that bears his name? Well, someone who's very close to this debate uh, and has written a lot about it is uh, Patrice Dutille. He's a professor of uh, politics and public administration at Ryerson University, also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Professor Dutille, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, as I said, maybe not a surprise, but but perhaps still uh, some some disappointment. What was your initial reaction when you heard the news this week? Oh, no surprise. The fix has been in for over a year. So uh, really, for for me and for I think for most people, this is uh, this was expected. So almost it's almost non-story. I mean, I think I appreciate that we're talking about it, but this is yeah. not news. Uh, this was this was decided a year ago. Right. So not a big surprise. Um, no. That said, though, does it does it make any sense? What what are we actually accomplishing here by changing the name of the university? Nothing. Nothing at all. This whole initiative was started because a few dozen students and uh, faculty members, of, you know, Ryerson University is 45,000 students. We're talking about a few dozen students, a few dozen faculty members, um, decided that suddenly the name Nitrogen Ryerson was offensive because he was associated, as you, as you all said in your introduction, because he was tangentially um, associated with residential schools. And so the, the name was considered to be repulsive. 
the name was associated with all sorts of forms of, uh, how do I say, intellectual, uh, cultural um, imposition. Uh, and, and a lot of students, indigenous students, said that uh, they simply felt uncomfortable uh, studying at a university named in honor of the founder of the of the Ontario public school system. So as a result of that, the current president decided to, uh, to act on it. The news cycle certainly did not help. The revelations uh, last year, uh, the, the, the events of last summer, uh, this spring, the revelations around the residential schools, which were not revelations. We all, you know, the report number four that came out of the... Uh, Residential school uh, study in 2015 detailed in, in, in fine, fine form the the uh, the reality that there are many people buried around the residential schools. All this, all this, all this added fuel to the fire, and so Edgerton Ryerson uh, was deemed to be expendable. He's not there to defend himself, and uh, of course he's he's been dead for a very long time, 140 years almost. Um, and the university doesn't, you know, the university has never defended uh, him. You know, I've been to, I've been to hundreds of events at Ryerson University. I've been teaching there for 16 years. I, the word name Edgerton Ryerson was never invoked. It was never discussed. So we don't know. Nobody knows except for a few old historians. <laughs> nobody knows who Edgerton Ryerson was. Nobody knows. Nobody can appreciate his value. And so in a context like that, it's not surprising that uh, there's no one to defend the memory of Ryerson or to defend his ideals, which is more important. I mean, the university was created in, in Ryerson's name because Ryerson represented certain values, and that's all been forgotten. So, I mean, uh, it's not surprising. The report that came out earlier this, this week is actually a little bit surprising. And I'm going to stop talking, Rob. I'll let you, I'll let you sure. ask the question. Well, no, this is I'm all really important sorry. context. But you, get, right. but you get me started, and I'm going to yeah. start. You know, um, but the report that came out uh, this week was, was, was surprising in the sense that only 10 pages was actually, 10 pages out of a 60-page report, actually, in career. And there's not one line in that report that says that Edgerton Ryerson did anything wrong. There's not one line. I find that to be rather surprising. Uh, I expected something worse. Yeah. So really what we're talking about here is a very interesting moment in our history where it's not the man or what he did that's in, uh, in question, but his legacy. In other words, what people have done since Edgerton Ryerson, that's, that's the problem. So it's not Ryerson who's being condemned officially, but his name is condemned. So I, I know I sound contradictory, but that's exactly what it is. The report has said right. nothing that has said that Edgerton Ryerson has not done anything wrong. But we don't like his name because his name reminds people of residential schools, even though he had nothing to do, as you said, with residential schools. There's no rational explanation here except to say that some people are offended and Ryerson University which has a great heart. I'm very proud to be associated with the people at Ryerson University. I'm very proud of the institution that we've created. Uh, in their great heart, decided, okay, well, let's listen to those few dozen people and let's change the name of the university. 
this is some important context here as well, because, you know, as I mentioned, residential schools uh, came into existence well after Edgerton Ryerson was dead. Uh, yes. In 18, the 1840s, however, he, he yes. did provide some, some curriculum design, I believe it was. There, there were yes. a couple of schools that were on reserve schools at the time. Now, these were not residential schools. This was yes. long before that. Yes. Are, are people yes. conflating and confusing the two here, first of all? Oh, very much. Very much. Uh, and, and thanks for raising that. The report of 1847 is sort of a, a pair of people hang uh, their hat. What happened here, basically, is that Edgerton Rice was superintendent public schools, right? He's the guy who runs the public school system in Ontario at that time. We're talking about 1840s. Let's remember the 1840s. I mean, this is a long, long time ago in Upper Canada. He was asked for his opinion. And here was the issue. How do we help young Indigenous students uh, learn the craft of farming? And so he's done some research, and his report said, uh, here's, what, here's what you do. You send them to a school where they will learn farming as it is practiced. They will wake up early in the morning, just like the farmers, and go to work in the morning, and in the afternoon... You have to teach them how to read, how to write, how to count, that kind of stuff, so that they can be good farmers. You have to remember that Edgerton Ryerson was a farmer. Originally, he was, became a Methodist minister and a leader in education and all these things, but at his origin, he grew up on a farm, and he was a farmer. That's it. And so what's, what's radical here? He was saying, you know what you have to do is, is, is get these young boys, not girls, get these young boys to learn how to run a farm. And at the same time, you need to teach them how to read and write and, you know, teach him a little religion. Again, he's a Methodist minister. He's the founder, one of the founders of Victoria University. Uh, he's the founder of the normal school in Ontario, which is the school to teach teachers how to teach. That, and so two schools were created out of that. They both eventually failed. But what, his, his, what, what he said was, you, know, you have to bring them on site, bring them onto a farm, a working farm, and teach them the craft of farming. That, that's his crime. That's his crime. The report itself that was issued this week very clearly says that residential schools did not start with Edgerton Ryerson, and they lasted long after he died. He is not responsible for residential school. It actually says that. So, I mean, I'm kind of at a loss. <laughs> Well, and here's something else that's important, because, you know, for example, one can look at John and McDonald and say, look, he, he said yes. these things. He, he had what would certainly seem to be racist views when it came to to indigenous uh, individuals. With Edgerton Ryerson, though, and it's really important, I think, in this context to understand, you know, he was a friend of the indigenous. Yes. He, he took the time to, to learn their language, to form these lifelong relationships with them. Yes. Yes. I mean, he, you know, he was a missionary uh, among the, uh, the Mississauga. Uh, he learned the language. He was uh, respected. He had friends um, among indigenous people. Uh, absolutely, you're absolutely right. He was not an enemy of of the indigenous people. He formed an association. He was part of an international association to protect indigenous people. This is we're talking the 1830s here. Uh, a big international movement to protect the indigenous people of the Americas. Because let's not forget that as bad as it was here in Ontario for Indigenous people, and nobody here, nobody I know, will ever dispute that. 
Nobody disputes that residential schools were a bad place. Nobody disputes that. But in Ontario, believe me, it was nothing compared to what it was in Mexico or the United States or Latin America or South America, Southern America. So, I mean, right. he was a moderate voice. In his day, he was a progressive voice. And I have to challenge you, Johnny McDonald was not a racist, okay? <laughs> Johnny McDonald fought racially, okay? He fought in terms of racism. But then everybody there, everybody in that period did the same thing. Everybody. No, there's no evidence that Johnny McDonald thought less of Indigenous Canadians or Black Canadians or Chinese Canadians or French Canadians or Irish Canadians. I have to say, I've looked at the record of Johnny McDonald very closely. And this line, you know, he was not a racist. My goodness, if you want to look for racists in the late 19th century, there is a long list. Johnny McDonald is not on that list. Well, and that's a fair point, but certainly in, in the context of all of that, it would be really unfair to put Edgerton Ryerson uh, into that category. So, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, some, absolutely. some disservice being done to the historical record. And yeah, I, I guess, and, and it's just, as you say, I mean, it's <laughs> there, there's no weak horse here. You know, we've just decided collectively he goes into to the dustbin of history. He goes into the category of, of villains, and, and that's that, it feels like. It's been it's a, it's a real interesting study about how decisions are made. Um, the government of Ontario could have been put a, put a, put a, could have put an end to this. Um, Ryerson University is not the only university uh, that will remind Ontarians of their colonial past. You know, there are countless universities: Carleton University, Brock University. The University of Waterloo, all these things are associated with colonial conquest. So yeah. Ryerson is only the first chapter here, I predict. There's going to be many, many more. Uh, Wilfrid Laurier, in English, Wilfrid Laurier University is now, has now put up a, set up a committee, a study committee, to look at uh, its association, the name of, of Wilfrid Laurier with Indigenous Matters. And I can tell you right now, the record of, of Wilfrid Laurier on Indigenous matters is terrible. It's terrible. It's really terrible. Uh, he, you know, he didn't care. Uh, it was not an issue for him. And uh, these are among the worst years of residential schools. There, the logic being applied to Ryerson, if it's applied to Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, will be that Laurier University will change its name. Carl, you know, Carlton right. was the general. Was the general. <laughs> Uh, who, uh, you know, established the British Empire in, in, in Canada. <laughs> it's the ultimate colonial symbol. Queen's University <laughs> is the ultimate colonial symbol. Are we going to change all that? Well, maybe we are, in which case we are definitely into a new period of Ontario history. And, um, gosh, where is this going to take us? I don't know. But what, what is going to... Be a reality is that we are cutting our ties to our past. Many people think this is a good thing, but I think that there's a lot about Canada's past that is very, very, very good, that is exemplary. And I, I feel sorry that we're cutting ourselves off from our past. Um, and that's, that's just a sorry tale. Well said. We'll leave it there. Professor Detail, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. My I appreciate pleasure. the insight. My pleasure, as always. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. There you go. Uh, Patrice Dutille, he's a professor at Ryerson University, as it is uh, for now known, and also a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. So some important points. 
I, I guess to consider, it all seems moot, I suppose, the decision has been made. The, the verdict has been rendered. Edgerton Ryerson is now officially a, a bad guy of history. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.